cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Today's discussion is with Dick Clark, whom some would call the most effective national security bureaucrat who's ever worked in government. Dick began looking at cybersecurity in the 1990s. He's one of the people that identified it way down the pike as a major issue for national security. And he's been a leader both in the Clinton administration, in the Bush administration, coming up with the first national cybersecurity strategy, and then in the Obama administration, giving advice and providing guidance on what direction the administration might want to take. So somebody who's been central to thinking about cybersecurity and national security for decades. What made you get into this? I mean, you always were sort of interested in computers when you were in the White House. Uh, we had the tragedy of the Oklahoma City bombing. And we also had, uh, around the same time, within a year, an odd incident that you remember from um, the terrorist group Amshan Rikyo, a Japanese group, that attempted to make biological and chemical weapons and use them in the metro in, in Tokyo. And President Clinton put the two of them together in his mind. The thing about working for Bill Clinton was he was always a step ahead of you, no matter how expert you might be. He said, so we had this big trailer truck, this 18-wheeler blow up in Oklahoma City. It was awful, but could have been worse. It could have been filled with biological or chemical weapons. Or, rather than just blowing up a federal building, it could have blown up a place that was critical for gas pipelines or computer networks or some infrastructure. So I want to investigate, he said, the threats, the emerging threats to our critical infrastructure. And we all assumed we were talking about physical infrastructure with TNT or high explosives. Reno was the attorney general. She loved the idea. And so we formed a presidential commission. And, you know, they're kind of fire and forget generally. You launch the commission and then you forget about it. And it was led by a retired Air Force general, General Marsh. And we gave a lot of money, so it had a big staff and had a big commission, too. They talked about how in the 1990s, during the life of the Clinton administration, the nation was changing, and companies all around the country in all sorts of different fields were migrating activity onto networks that were connected to the internet, and productivity as a result was skyrocketing because things that people used to do manually were now being done uh, online and networked, but they said this opened up a real threat. Uh, because all of this had been designed without anybody thinking of security. Now, uh, all of this was at risk. And we thought, wow, that's that's all a new thought. It was a new thought to us, anyway. Even though I had been involved in launching the commission because I had the terrorism portfolio at the White House, my colleague, Rand Beers, who, you know, later went on to become uh, the acting secretary of Homeland Security and many other things, uh, Rand 
was the special assistant to the president for intelligence. And he had been honchoing the commission. And it came in and it recommended a huge number of things that the president do to have outreach to the private sector. And Rand looked at this and said, I can't be the guy who does this because I'm the special assistant to the president for intelligence. And the private sector is going to run away from the intelligence community. Especially, and you remember this, Jim, we, we had just come off a big 10-year battle over uh, encryption. Uh, in which the intelligence community had rather stupidly insisted on having what was euphemistically named the clipper chip. This terrible idea that uh, all encryption be done by chips approved by the government. You don't think adding a $2,000 chip to every cell phone was a good idea? $2,000 chip to every cell phone and having the government have a key to unlock anything that was encrypted. Who came up with this? Probably someone out of the NSA. But we were asked, uh, you and I were asked to enforce it. I think we quickly decided that was a dumb idea. So, but this was the, the taint on the intelligence community at the time. And the next thing I knew, uh, the president and the national security advisor had assigned it to me. And my reaction was, you know, I know something about computer security, but nowhere near enough if I'm going to be the president's point man on this. So I started using the, the, the thing that you can do when you're in the White House. I would call up CEOs of major corporations uh, like Cisco and Microsoft and AT&T and, and say, uh, hi, I'm calling from the White House. The president has appointed me. Uh, I want to get smart. Uh, I want to come and see you, and then I want you to hand me off to your troops to educate me. And they all agreed to do that. Of course they would. What I quickly discovered was Bill Gates uh, at Microsoft and John Chambers at Cisco and a lot of other similarly grand names had not a clue about cybersecurity. Some of their people did, but their people all knew silos. Microsoft, they understood software. They weren't doing anything to secure it. In fact, quite the opposite. It was terrible. But they knew software. At Cisco, they knew uh, how to secure a, uh, a router for the network. They also weren't doing much about securing it. As I went from, from company to company, I realized the cyber industry wasn't an industry. It was a series of silos, largely dominated, each silo dominated by one or two companies. And in none of these companies was cybersecurity concerned. So they hadn't designed cybersecurity in. They didn't understand the threats. They didn't believe in the threats. Uh, it was a really rude awakening, uh, especially when I then hooked up with some hackers uh, and had them demonstrate to me how most of the stuff that the companies were telling me about everything was fine, everything was dandy, there was no problem. How'd you find the hackers? I called the FBI and I said, you know, I know there are black hat hackers and, and if you know who they are, you've put them in jail. And I know there are white hat hackers because, you know, there are people who work for the government and universities and whatnot. But there's something in the middle uh, and it turned out uh, they knew of a group called The Loft and they were a bunch of guys who worked mid-level jobs in um, computer companies around Boston uh, and as their day jobs. At, at night, they would all get together in a, in a loft uh, in an old warehouse in Watertown near Harvard Square. Um, Fridays, they would go around when the garbage was picked up. <laughs> Fridays, they would go around and dumpster dive uh, at all these IT companies and find computers that the companies were throwing out. They were perfectly good computers. Uh, and so they'd take them back into their loft, and they had this sort of man cave filled with, and they fixed them up, uh, filled with all sorts of computers. And they would try to break into software uh, and break into hardware, and they were doing it all the time. Uh, and when I asked them the same questions as I asked the, the companies, mm -hmm. I got very different answers. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so it was a process. I also went out to NSA uh, to learn from, from them. That was a horrifying experience. Uh, Ken Minahan, who is now my colleague uh, here uh, at Paladin Investments, Ken was the Air Force three-star who was the director of NSA. And he opened the kimono, and NSA showed me everything that they could do. And I came back to the White House uh, ashen, and my staff said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I've just seen what NSA can do, and I think we might as well give up hope, uh, because if NSA can do it now, other people will be able to do it in the future, and NSA can break into anything. This was 1998? Seven. Okay. Um, anybody could break into anything, I thought, because they were breaking into things live in front of me. Uh, they, were, they were breaking into things I still can't talk about, uh, all around the world. And um, sucking down files and rearranging networks, and, and no one at the other end was any the wiser. And they eventually, it was about a year later when uh, we started seeing the Russian attacks. Who were you most worried about back then? And one of the things that came up a lot was uh, non-state actors, which remains sort of the, the holy grail. It's never happened, but state actors all over the place. So yeah. you rank threats. Yeah, we didn't know then who to worry about. I, I mm -hmm. was always on the lookout for non-state actors because that's what I was dealing with in my other portfolios, uh, terrorism, narcotics, and proliferation and whatnot. The state actors we found initially were Russian. Um, sure. and some Chinese. Uh, the Chinese were relatively easy to detect because they made a lot of noise uh, if you bothered to listen. The Russians were really good from the beginning, uh, and they got better and better and better. It's interesting because they were the ones who proposed in 98 uh, a global treaty banning this kind of thing. I said, look, someday we'll be ready. And I think someday we were, um, but we were, certainly weren't ready then. One of the, you told me once, this was a while, it was at an RSA conference, that I asked you, what, you know, why did you say cyber Pearl Harbor when it's so unlikely? And you said you hoped it would move people along. Is, is that the intent here? Yeah. Well, first of all, I can't claim credit for the, no, for sure. the term cyber Pearl Harbor. I don't know who came up with it. I get blamed for it. Um, Time Magazine, 1993. Yeah. No, I think the, the, you're right. There's a, yeah. there's a Time Magazine cover Modern story. Cyber yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I looked it up. It's like, where did this come from? Yeah, whoever wrote that Time uh, cover story and, and whatever out. editor put it on the cover in 1993, it was so far ahead of their time. Um, I had a problem with uh, Cyber Pearl Harbor because Pearl Harbor happened at one place. Uh, you can say oh, there were simultaneous attacks throughout the Pacific. True. But in terms of attacks on the United States, it happened in one place. Uh, and a cyber, a major cyber attack by a state actor, a cyber war offensive by a state actor against the United States would happen simultaneously all over the country. Pearl Harbor also resulted in over 3,000 Americans being killed in one day, as did 9-11. Um, and I thought very few people m might die in a major cyber attack. We need to get away from this metric of body bags as determining what's important. And unfortunately, Americans, and particularly American media and journalists, tend to equate significant events, significant threats with body bags. What made Clinton so interested in this? How did he pick up on it? Well, there's no more 
creative mind than Bill Clinton. Uh, and I think he, part of it is he was awake 20, uh, 21 hours a day. So he was, always, uh, he was always a step ahead of us. He also talked a lot to uh, outside experts. Mm -hmm. Whatever the subject was, if you went in to brief him uh, and you thought you were the government expert or you brought the government experts with you and you thought he had never heard about this issue before, well, you were wrong because he'd seen on his agenda that this meeting was coming up and he had called out to people who knew people and he collected his own information and he would start firing questions at you. Um, I just did my own podcast um, with him. Uh, my podcast is called Future State, plug. I had a great interview with him. He is still uh, sharp as a tack. If I remember correctly, at the end of the administration, there was a little bit of a tussle with FBI and DOJ over who would be in charge of cybersecurity that you ended up, I think, resolving. They were a little unhappy. I do remember that. Well, there were a lot of decisions on roles and missions. Uh, one of the things that we tried always to do with presidential decision documents, uh, PDDs, was to say, who does what? We didn't just want to say Defense Department's in charge or Justice is in charge. We wanted to break down the issue, mm -hmm. whatever the issue was, uh, and say, look, there are 10 jobs here, and this is what you are going to do, Justice Department, but you're going to be supported by the following other departments. Mm -hmm. So we took this term from the Pentagon, the supporting Ting Command and the Supported Command. Uh, and we did that with a number of issues, including cyber. Cyber was a new and emerging issue. The FBI made a play to be in charge of all of it, uh, as the FBI usually does. And we said, no, you're not in charge of all of it. You're in charge of a small bit of it. And to keep you honest, we're going to make sure that Secret Service uh, also has law enforcement jurisdiction over it uh, so that you can compete with each other. Uh, I think government competition, competition in government can and be useful sometimes. How much did you do on the offensive side? Because the Air Force was getting into this end of the Clinton administration. So we did a couple of big moves on the offensive side. George Tenet, understanding the, the importance of all of this, decided he needed to have a center at CIA uh, that could do offensive technology. Uh, and so he created the, uh, the Information Operations Center, IOC. A lot of people who read fiction and even nonfiction think Cyber Command or NSA is the one who's out there, you know, breaking into all these uh, foreign systems uh, and doing dirty. Often the times that's true, but more often than not, it's the one that they don't know about. Um, it's CIA IOT. Having created CIA, IOT. We then had to have a deconfliction mechanism so that it didn't bump into NSA. Uh, it didn't bump into uh, other parts of the Defense Department. It could well be that you know NSA could have been in a, a target for years listening because uh, NSA was only authorized to listen, to collect information, not to do anything uh, that would alter the network. And then you know CIA could come in, bust in, and make some noise, set off alarms get caught, and in the process NSA would get caught and we'd lose the collection. So we set up a, a deconfliction mechanism that uh, we did not get into, it was early days, we really did not get into uh, rules of engagement. Who the deconfliction process? 
Uh, in theory, the uh, special assistant to the president for intelligence did. Mm. So that was Rand. Uh, at one point it was Rand. I think it went on to become Mary McCarthy. What was the transition like? It, it didn't look seamless from the outside when you went from uh, Clinton to Bush. Oh, that was a mess. Um, you know, I, I had been involved in the Bush 41 transition to Clinton. Uh, and that had been a wholesale firing, except for me, uh, I think, and maybe one other person. Mm -hmm. um, but after a while, we got it working. Uh, the first year was rough uh, because there were a lot of people who didn't know how the White House worked, mm -hmm. and they were working in the White House. But after a while, they learned. Um, the transition was tough because the, the Bush 43 people came in mm -hmm. with an assumption that they knew exactly how the White House worked because they'd all worked in it before mm -hmm. uh, in Bush 41. They'd been out for eight years mm -hmm. and they thought they could just pick up exactly where they left off. They were sort of preserved in amber from eight years before. And even though they had been out in the real world during those eight years, they didn't really seem to notice mm -hmm. that the world had changed uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, like non-state actors being a threat, and like cybersecurity being a real deal. Uh, and I remember very wide-eyed stares uh, from people like Colin Powell and Condi Rice and, and, uh, and others um, when I said, hey, the big issues you're going to deal with are not what you think they are. They're terrorism by non-state actors, and they're cybersecurity by state actors. The one guy who did get it during those initial briefings was Dick Cheney. Bush administration had a national homeland security strategy. They had a national cyber security strategy. And if you look at them both and search for cybersecurity in the homeland strategy and homeland in the cyber strategy, it doesn't appear. So after 9-11, um, we reorganized the government in two stages. People think, oh, after 9-11, we created the Department of Homeland Security. No, we didn't. In fact, we continued, the Bush administration continued to oppose the idea mm -hmm. of a Department of Homeland Security until the last minute. Uh, it was really being pushed by Democrats, uh, Joe Lieberman, mm -hmm. uh, Senator Lieberman, uh, in the Congress. But we did take the first step at reorganization after 9-11, and we created a Homeland Security staff in the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, and I requested uh, that we create a cybersecurity staff mm -hmm. and wrote an executive order creating it. Uh, mm -hmm. I then went off to run it, uh, and uh, other people went off to run the, the Homeland Security staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, and frankly, we didn't talk to each other a whole heck of a lot. Why was that? Well, we were all busy. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and we were sort of pushing, you know, virgin, virgin territory. Uh, and we were all operating under the assumption that there would not be a Department of Homeland Security because mm -hmm. the Bush administration opposed it. Mm -hmm. Well, it opposed it until it became clear that the votes were there to create it in the House over the objections of the president. And so the president, the day after that became clear, walked out into the Rose Garden and said, I just had this great idea. We should create a Department of Homeland Security. What do you think about DHS? Where would you, uh, if you were looking at it, a polite way to say it would be rocky start, particularly on cyber. Yeah, well, you know, all new departments, if you go back historically over the last 50 years, all new departments have had a rocky start. and. Those rocky starts tend to last a decade or more. Mm 
-hmm. uh, before the departments congeal. Uh, so Homeland Security right now is seven big agencies, uh, and they're kind of siloed. Mm -hmm. uh, and cyber is not one of them. Uh, under legislation that's passed the House and is pending before the Senate, mm -hmm. there would be an eighth semi-independent agency that would do cyber. It would take all the functions that are now scattered around in the uh, National uh, Protection Directorate mm -hmm. uh, and turn them into an operating agency. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good idea, uh, create a cybersecurity agency in Homeland. Uh, and then I think Homeland really needs to take uh, some lessons from how the Defense Department eventually started to work. You know, it was started in 1947, and it really didn't get working well. Uh, some people would argue until the 60s. Other people would argue until the 80s. 80s yeah. um, and the way it became uh, an effective department, I think, was by having the, the, the major independent organizations, both the, the services, Army, Navy, Air Corps, Marines, uh, and the defense agencies uh, integrated into one department that was joint. So people were transferred from each other's departments and they all worked together mm -hmm. and there were joint task forces for, in, for specific functions. Uh, I think we need to take DHS and turn it into something much more like, organizationally like, uh, on the org chart. Uh, like the Pentagon. One thing from the outside that appears to be a constant is that when you were doing the Bush administration cyber strategy, a lot of the opposition came from the National Economic Council and from OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology. And that appeared to be true in the Obama administration yeah. as well. In a lot of ways, one of the more memorable moments for me was you uh, getting the Obama campaign. Remember that speech he gave in Indianapolis mm -hmm. where he listed the three big threats to national security? And to, I think, everyone's shock, cyber was one of them. Yeah. How did you do that? <laughs> well, I met President Obama when he was a senator and uh, when no one thought he had a chance in hell, <laughs> including me. Um, and I sat in, in with Susan Rice, who became his national security advisor. Mm -hmm. The three of us sat in some dingy room uh, in a rental space on Capitol Hill and talked about threats. And I mentioned cyber, and he got it. Uh, he got it right away. Uh, and then Susan Rice, uh, who was national security advisor for the campaign, uh, put together a number of teams Europe team, Asia team. She asked me to put together a threats team. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we did. Most of the effort of the threats team was focused on terrorism, which Obama understood very well and, and, and articulated a policy on very quickly in the, in the campaign. But also part of the threats team uh, focused on cyber because I wanted to do cyber policy yeah. in the campaign and because he had, uh, he had said he understood that was a threat. Uh, so we wanted to differentiate ourselves from the McCain campaign uh, by saying we're younger, we're hipper, and we get technology. Did that work out well, do you think, the way he, he if you just list things, he did more EOs, PDDs, PPDs than any other president. How would you rate it? 
Well, I think he was slow in getting around to dealing with cyber policy. He did, however, create a cyber policy office uh, in the NSC uh, and staff it with very good people. Uh, and, and the appropriate number of, of people. Mm -hmm. And eventually he got around uh, to understanding that you had to deal with China um, in a very um, very bold way, and, and Susan Rice did. Uh, she went to Beijing and said, uh, your president, is gonna, President Xi, is gonna come to the White House for a summit. Uh, that summit is going to be uh, a mess. It's not going to work. It's not going to be successful unless we can announce a deal on cybersecurity. And that deal means you stop hacking American companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and at first, the Chinese were surprised. They didn't get it. Um, uh, she is related to me. She doesn't think the very top leadership kind of knew what was going on. They didn't. Yeah. Uh, and that. Eventually, after she made a big deal about this, uh, President Xi asked his, one of his top lieutenants, go check into this issue, <laughs> and came back uh, and said, uh, yeah, the Americans are right, we are doing that. Uh, and they, uh, they then said, they called her up when she got back to Washington, uh, and said, all right, um, we'd like to send a team over to negotiate a deal mm -hmm. before President Xi comes to the White House. Uh, and they did negotiate a deal, and I think for a while it lasted. Uh, the deal was that we would not spy on each other's companies for economic advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, I think from what I hear uh, out in the wild, um, that agreement has kind of broken down in the last year or so. Mm -hmm. As U.S.-Chinese relations have generally broken down under sure. Trump, uh, I think the Chinese are are honoring what, what the old State Department phrase, we're honoring the agreement in the breach. So last question, looking back, where are we now? What do we need to do? Where should we go? There's a whole cybersecurity industry now. Uh, people are spending billions of dollars on it. Uh, the security is immensely better than it was. But the threats have progressed. The skill of the attackers, uh, the tools of the attackers, have progressed apace, uh, and I would argue they've, they've progressed more rapidly than the defense. So while the defense is much better, so is the offense. Uh, and what we're gonna do, and again I come back to Bill Clinton because he made this point to me this year, we gotta close the gap between the offense and, and the defense. He says this is historically true of all weapons technologies going back a thousand years, yeah. that you, then you come out with the offense, uh, whatever it is, the spear, the bow, the arrow, uh, and then the defense has to come up with something. Uh, and, and what he said was this period in time between when the offense has a weapon that's effective, the period in time between then and when the defense catches up with a counterweapon, that's the most unstable and dangerous time, and we're still in that period in time. So that's what you think we need to do. But I do think there, there are ways to uh, manage networks that close the gap with existing mm -hmm. defensive technology. The problem is not uh, that we lack the right defensive technology. The problem is we don't deploy it. And it, one of the reasons for that is people don't want to spend the money. Yeah. 
They could buy an antivirus system. They could buy a firewall. And beginning in 1997, they could buy something called an intrusion detection system that went ping every once in a while. But every once in a while was like every five seconds. That's all you could spend money on. And so companies, big companies running big networks, came to the conclusion that IT security spending was a small amount of the IT spend. But you couldn't do anything more. Mm. Now, I go into big companies, really big companies, Wall Street banks, and they have 60, 70 different security applications running on their networks from almost as, as many vendors, you know, maybe 75 applications from 50 vendors. And, and they can spend 300, 400, 500, 600 million dollars a year on cybersecurity every year in each of the big eight banks. If you want to be secure, you have to spend money. It's got to be more than 3% of your IT budget. It's got to be more like 15 or 20% of your IT budget. If you do that, you can be secure today. We just have to re-educate the leadership of corporations and governments uh, that IT isn't free. IT security isn't free. It's costly. It costs a lot. But since you have made your company dependent on your IT network, you now have to make it secure. Last spin-off question, honestly the last. So what about regulation? I am always uh, one who is interested in what the government can do to stimulate corporations to do the right thing. Uh, I'm a capitalist who believes that uh, capitalists left to their own will, be, will do terrible things. Uh, that it has to be regulated and guided capitalism. Mm -hmm. And while I know the government has in the past written regulations that were abhorrent and, and stupid and costly and ineffective, that doesn't mean they all were and doesn't mean they all will be. I think you can write smart regulation, and I think in the absence of smart regulation, certain people will never do it. They'll pretend they're doing it, they'll give lip service to it, um, but they'll never actually achieve cybersecurity. And I don't care with most companies if that happens. But I do care if you're an electric power company, uh, if you own and operate a nuclear power plant, if you own a pipeline, you know, some core critical infrastructures, I think you've got to get it right. Dick, thank you for a great interview. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cyber From The Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start.